This evening we'll be in Revelation chapter 10, and we'll see about chapter 11 as well. First, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1. What we will be reading is another interlude. This will be the second interlude. In the interludes of Revelation, it is mostly meant to encourage the faithful, to encourage us as believers to press on in the faith. And that's what we'll see here. Revelation 10, verse 1. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In this chapter, we are reading of a strong angel and a little book, and John's interaction with this angel and the little book. Verse 1, it says, Another strong angel came out of heaven. Earlier in chapter 5, we saw that there was a strong angel, and we will see one more in 1821. It's unsure, we're unsure if this is one angel that appears three times, or three different angels, um, and even in this chapter, in verse 1, some take this to be Christ because of the description that's found in verses 1 and 2. But I take this to be another strong angel, another of the kind of strong angel that we saw in chapter 5 and we will see in chapter 18. A strong angel. And strong, these strong angels come at various critical parts in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, because the book needed to be opened, here in chapter 10, for encouragement and uh, to prepare John to, for this uh, next book, the little book that he's supposed to consume, and then the, the oath that he swears about what is to, to take place. But also notice that this angel in verse 1 comes down out of heaven. Whatever angel comes out of heaven comes from God. This is the point. The strong angel is not acting according to his own will, but he's acting according to the will of God. That's why he comes out of heaven. 
In the Bible, both good angels, such as Gabriel, I am Gabriel, he says in Luke chapter 1, who stands in the presence of God and then explains why he has come to Zacharias, or an evil angel, like in Judges 9.23, an evil spirit from God came and tormented and afflicted Abimelech and made a division between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Whatever happens in this world, whether a good angel, as in this case, or an evil angel, they come from God, according to God's will, to carry out whatever God intends. He's described here as being clothed with a cloud. Clothed with the cloud. In the scriptures, Jesus is described as coming in the clouds in Matthew 24. Also in Daniel 7, Jesus comes in the clouds, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Coming in the clouds is a sign of judgment. That judgment is coming, and the one who is coming is coming to either announce the judgment or to inflict the judgment. And he also has a rainbow, rainbow upon his head. He not only comes for judgment, but he also comes with the rainbow. The rainbow in Genesis 9 was a sign of God's mercy and patience on mankind. His mercy and patience, yes, he is patient towards all mankind, but he is specifically merciful towards his people. He, towards his people. And this chapter does, and the next chapter does, explain how God will take care of his people and in due time answer their prayers. His face was like the sun. His face being like the sun, the sun being radiant and being a light, it is the source of, he is the source, or as a spokesman, and who he represents, the source of all that is good, as Jesus is the light of the world, and we also are called lights of the world. He is radiating the light, the true light that needs to be known, needs to be understood. And then his feet, his feet are like pillars of fire. For the feet to be like uh, pillars of fire uh, also is representative. Fire in the Bible representative of testing and inflicting a test and even punishment on wicked people. So testing people to see how they come forth. And if they are wood, hay, and straw, if they are stubble, they will be burned com and consumed completely. He comes like this with these various characteristics. But ver also in verse 2, he had in his hand a little book which was open. This book may be a different book, a, a book that is describing the things that are about to happen in chapter 11, or it could be the book of chapter 5 that Christ opened, and when he opened it, it remained open. It remained open so that the seals of judgment could be uh, exposed and then inflicted upon the people. And I think that that's the better way to take it, that this is the book that Christ opened, who alone was worthy to open. And so in the book, not only is it a book of judgment, but it's a book of mercy, mercy towards God's people and judgment towards his enemies. So then the angel, in verse 2, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Right on the sea, left on the land. We see this phrase three times in this chapter. Verse 5 also, I saw standing on the angels standing on the sea and on the land. And we, we'll see this again where the angel in verse 8, the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. 
Him standing on the sea and on the land, he must have been a, a huge figure, uh, an ominous and, and imposing figure who's able to put one foot on the sea and one on the land. And this signifies that he is the, the one who's meeting out and announcing judgment that's to take place on the whole earth. There's no place, no sphere that is not under the control of God when he commissions his angel to announce what God wants to do. He's got full authority over all the earth because the God he represents is the sovereign God over all the earth and the God of all the nations of the earth. Verse 3, now he speaks. He cried out, he cries out, he shouts with a loud voice, with a loud voice as when a lion roars. In the scriptures, such as in Hosea 11.10 and Amos 3.8, Sometimes the Bible describes God as a lion. God as a lion who roars and shouts and devours his prey according to his mighty power. Yes, the Bible at other times, such as 1 Peter 5.8, describes Satan as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But the Bible also describes God that way. And in this case, this representative of God is like a lion that roars because the lion that roars is indicating that he is powerful, that the prey is conquerable and, and vanquished. This is the kind of thing that God is announcing, that whatever he wants to do, it will happen because he has all the power. He is the king of the whole world, just as the lion is the king of the jungle. And when he cried out, had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. The seven peals of thunder, they are unnamed here. Throughout this chapter, the, the peals of thunder, and even in chapter 10, verse 11, it says, They said to me, they said to me, the peals of thunder are speaking, and they give John commands. In Psalm 29, God's voice is described as thunder. And there we read several times how God's voice is like thunder, and it may be here that John the Apostle is describing God's voice, the voice of God the Father, as thunder. And he calls it seven peals of thunder, like Psalm 29. So, I take this to be God's voice, thunderous voice. Thunderous voice, a voice that you should listen to, a voice that you cannot help but hear, because it is so loud and so powerful. This is God, and God tells him, do not write them. Do not write uh, the things that you see. We'll see this in verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. You see, John is a prophet. He's a seer. He's an apostle. And he, whatever he sees, he's supposed to write. That's what he was told in chapter 1, verses 11 and 19. He was supposed to write everything. But at this point, this information, this revelation that he hears, he's, a, he's not supposed to write it. And... In fact, he heard the voice saying, a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Another voice, we're not told which voice that is, commands him in this other voice, maybe the voice of Christ, uh, whoever it was, commands him not to write what he just saw and heard. He's not supposed to do this. Now, Hearing something in heaven and not revealing it 
is also something we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul was caught up into paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 4. He was caught up into paradise and he says, He heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. In 2 Corinthians 12, it doesn't say what the content was. In fact, it's inexpressible, so it's hidden content. Paul knows it, but not anyone else. And the same appears here in Revelation 10, verse 4. Um, it doesn't say what it was. We don't know. He heard it, but he wasn't supposed to write it. Now, from this hidden information, it, it could be something related to the future. Likely it is something related to the future that he is not supposed to reveal. But we do know from this passage, such as verse 6, that there shall be delay no longer. The end is coming, and the end is imminent, but he is not supposed to reveal everything he knows about that end. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. The angel standing, showing his dominion over both the sea and the land, here at this point he lifts up his right hand to heaven. In the scriptures, starting in the, the earliest account is in Genesis chapter 14, 14, 22, Abraham um, swears by, by raising the hand, and various places in the Old Testament, they swear by raising the hand, signifying that this is an oath that they are undertaking. The, the, and the right hand is usually the one that's raised because this is the, the strong hand or the powerful hand with most people, it is, and signifying that this oath has power over the one who is making it. And even if it's the one, in this case, the angel, or if it's God who swears, swears not only in relation to himself, but to his hearers. This will happen by the mighty power of God. This oath, this um, solemn truth that he's announcing, it will happen. Because he swears by God, verse 6. He swears by him who lives forever and ever. Characteristics of God here. One, he's eternal. He lives forever and ever. The heavens and the earth are created, and they will pass away in due time. And even people will die because they are mortal. There is death in the world, but God lives forever and ever. He's immortal, He's eternal, and therefore the eternal God is able to control and even to announce and even to promise and even to threaten whatever will happen in His world. His world. He created the, the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and everything that's in them. He created them all. Since He created them all, He controls them all. He has sovereignty over all. Just as a potter has sovereignty over his clay, just as makers of all kinds of things have sovereignty and control over the things that they make, so God does. He is the e eternal Creator. And what does what, 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 what is said? That there shall be delay no longer. Delay no longer. 
people have been waiting, especially the saints have been waiting. The saints have been waiting for heaven and earth to pass away so that they can be relieved of their afflictions now and see God and be with Christ forever and ever. The promise here is that the delay will not last forever and ever. A time will come in due time when God says for heaven and earth to pass away, it will happen. Now look at verse 7. What needs to happen in the meantime? In the meantime, it says, verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. In the time of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God will be finished. In due time in the future, all that God has promised in the prophets will transpire. It will take place. What did he say in the prophets? He said in the prophets, as Paul says in verse in Ephesians 1, verse 10, he says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In due time, the fullness of the times God will sum up, He will conclude everything in Christ. Everything that's in heaven, everything that's in, on the earth, He will do so because He announced it by His servants, the prophets. His servants, the prophets, is a familiar phrase from the Old Testament, especially in passages such as Second Chronicles, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel. His servants, the prophets, are all those messengers of God sent throughout the Old Testament to preach the truth of Christ, to preach the gospel of Christ. And this is what the Apostle John is telling us, that the mystery of God, this mystery of God, things that are unknown, things that are not experienced to the full, those things will in due time be fully experienced and fully seen and realized in Christ. Whatever Christ wills, and in due time we all will see Him face to face because this is what the prophets preached. By the way, even John is a prophet, as it says in Revelation 1. He is a prophet, 1 verses 2 to 3. So his servants, the prophets, this may also be an indication of what all the, the New Testament has said. What all, even Paul and all the others who have written in the New Testament, they in a sense are considered prophets. Not commonly so, but they're commonly called apostles, the Old Testament, as prophets. But the only difference, basically, is the apostles saw Christ. That, that is a, a big difference, but that is the one difference that distinguishes the prophets and the apostles. The apostles saw Christ in bodily form, and the, the, the prophets did not. Otherwise, their ministries were the same. They heard the Word of God, they wrote the Word of God, they preached the Word of God, and they suffered for it. Their ministries are the same. They served God as prophets. Verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. He's supposed to go and take it. He's supposed to take it from the angel because the angel has brought it there for him to experience something that is an object lesson. The object lesson. What is this object lesson? Verse 9. And I went to the angel as an obedient prophet and apostle. I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. 
when he tells him to give the little book, he's not doing it as though he's uh, someone in great uh, authority over this angel, but he's telling him as one who is obedient because the angel told him to take it, or the voice in heaven told him to take it from this angel. So he receives this little book, and verse 9, it, the, it, he was told, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So, it's going to be both bitter and sweet. Sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. Verse 10, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This book, as an object lesson, is both sweet and bitter. The words of God, it doesn't tell us which words of God these are. It could be symbolic of the whole word of God, the whole gospel, or a portion of it, or a portion of what is about to happen. It doesn't tell us. Whatever it is, we know it's the word of God. It's the truth of God. And the truth of God from Genesis to Revelation always has an element that is sweet to the believer and an element that's bitter to the believer. What's sweet to the believer is all the hopes and all the promises, all the mercy, the forgiveness, all of the immortality that it explains, everything that we have in Christ. That's the sweet part of it. But the bitter part of it is that part that requires our suffering, that requires affliction, hardships, persecutions, and even martyrdom for some of us. That's the bitter part for the believer. John, representative of all believers, he knows that there's a sweet part to the Word of God, but there's also a bitter part, a hard part, a harsh part that we have to endure. It, he has to assimilate it, as he did in a figurative, visionary sense. He assimilated it. But we, and he, we all have to experience it in our own person, the sweet and the bitter. And verse 11, And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. See, he must prophesy to various people around the world. This is another way for the Bible to describe people, no matter who they are, from whatever background, you must prophesy concerning them. Some of this he will have to do personally, and some of this will have to be by means of what he writes. What he writes. And so, in this case, what he has to do is not only what he has to do and prophesy, but... By extension, since John, in a sense, is representative of us, what he experiences, what he sees, we eventually will experience and see. And in the sense that this represents us would be that we too are called to prophesy concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, we, not in the sense that John prophesies, but we do repeat what John says, we do repeat what Paul says, we do repeat what Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Moses said, we do repeat them, and in that sense, we prophesy. In a sense, we all are prophets. We are all prophets in the sense that we repeat the Word of God. A prophet in the Old Testament and even the New Testament apostles, they tell the future in two ways. They tell the future in, the, in one way that is foretelling specific events that will happen. They say that Christ will return. There is a day of judgment. There is heaven and hell. And even more specifically about human events, they say that the temple of Jerusalem will be destroyed. 
They prophesy of how Antichrist will arise. They prophesy of how nations such as the Babylonians will rise and then they will fall. They prophesy like this of specific events. But in the same way, we, we prophesy of future events that are general and known to all, that it, there is a day of judgment. Uh, we prophesy like that. When we tell people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you have to repent of your sins, otherwise the day of judgment is coming and you won't be ready for it. We are prophets in that sense. Um, but we're also prophets in the sense that we pray, and we pray like the prophets. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it would not rain on the earth for three years and six months, and it did not rain. And then he prayed that it would rain, and it did rain, and the sky poured forth, and the earth produced its fruit. So as a, a prophet, we are prophets in that sense too. We pray for God's will to be accomplished on the earth, whether that will is for blessing, for rain to fall, or for cursing, for no rain to fall for three and a half years. And we can pray and should pray in that same way as Elijah, because James encourages us to do so. James 5, 17. Now, chapter 11. Chapter 11. The primary <coughs> object or subject here is the two witnesses. Chapter 11, verse 1. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it, and leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot and uh, the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and will make merry. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies beheld him. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which, which is in heaven, was open, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and, a great, and, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. This chapter has many interpretations. It has many interpretations. One, on the literal side, they could be summarized more on the literal side and the other on the figurative side. In this study, we will take it on the more figurative side. So, verse 1, And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it, and leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. Here, he's uh, given a measuring rod like a staff. This measuring rod like a staff, this is not new here in Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48. There is a temple described, and there is also a call to measure that temple in chapter 40. It's uh, given there in chapter 40, verses 3 and following. So, him measuring the temple, what would this signify? If we're going to take it uh, as uh, on uh, the figurative side, it is signifying the fact that measuring the temple, like it does in Ezekiel 40, measuring the temple signifies the fact that God is the one who uh, appoints it, orchestrates it, protects it. He's the one that puts it in place and he's also the one that can uh, uh, create upheaval and destruction of the temple. So it could signify that the, the fact that God is in control of all of these events, even related to the spiritual side of things. Another way to take it figuratively is to say that this is representative of the church. The church is the temple of God. In, in, uh, for, for example, 1 Corinthians 3, 16-17, um, and 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 6 uh, 14-18. Um, the temple, uh, God is a t um, in His people, the temple, and this is what happens here. But the outside part, notice in verse 2, this would be, the court for the Gentiles. The nations of the world, they don't belong in the temple of God in the sense that God's not protecting them. He is allowing them to do havoc, to wreak havoc, to tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, those who take this on the literal side say that actually the temple is measured because this is a temple for the tribulational period. In the tribulation, they say that a temple will be built and John is given an idea of how big the temple is and the Jewish people will be worshipping and meeting in the temple but the Gentiles will not and the Gentiles will 
have the outside, which in Herod's temple, they were able to worship in the outer court of the temple, but not in any of the three inner courts. They were not able to worship. So the literal interpretation says the nations are able to come there and to do whatever they want here at the temple, which is in the holy city. However, I think with the figurative interpretation, we can see that uh, it, that is possible that God protects His people and He lets the nations of the world do as they please, but with a limited sphere of influence. And then verse 3, the two witnesses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are clothed in sackcloth, obviously, because as witnesses, they are, like in the Old Testament, mostly, being clothed in sackcloth is an indication of preaching something that requires mourning and grief, such as uh, preaching against sin and representing the fact that we have to have remorse and sorrow over our sin. They clothe themselves with a hard cloth, south, uh, sackcloth, which is a rough cloth, clothing, uh, clothing themselves with that, um, signifying the fact that they are preaching repentance. Now, who these two witnesses are clothed in this way, there are many interpretations. Let me just list a few of them. There are people who say that they are two prophets raised up from those who turn to Christ after the rapture. That would be a literal interpretation. Others say that these are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel and Joshua from Zechariah chapter 3. Or Elijah and Elisha from the book of 2 Kings. James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus' disciples. Peter and Paul, even, have been mentioned. And then allegorically, if one takes them allegorically, they could be the law and the prophets, the law and the gospel, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Israel and the church, Israel and the word of God, and even the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Because what's said there in the earlier chapters has some similarities to what is here, according to some interpreters. I think, though, that it's easiest and best not to deal with the, the speculations uh, that are there that way, to take it as them representing the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, it, that is the easiest way, because the one description primarily seems to describe Moses, and the other description seems to describe Elijah. And that's another uh, possibility. Many have said that this is Moses and Elijah. In these days, that is the predominant interpretation that th these represent um, the things that Moses and Elijah did. In the ancient interpretation, in the early church, in the early church, the pr predominant interpretation was that this was representative of Enoch and Elijah, Enoch and Elijah. And the, the reason for Enoch is that they are slain in this chapter. Enoch was not slain. He, he ascended into heaven. And Elijah was not slain either. He ascended into heaven in 2 Kings. So we here, I think for the moment, we'll take this to be them as representatives of the law and the prophets. But as representatives of the law and the prophets... They're also models of how the church should behave. 
As I said earlier about John in chapter 10, even the church, the church should be like this, preaching the way that they preach, because we will take this to be more figurative and not literal. That They're not going to literally spew out fire and so forth. I don't think that that's necessarily what he's describing. Okay, we'll see. Now, verse 4. He says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The two olive trees and two lampstands. This has an echo of Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4, 11 to 14. And in the Bible, the olive tree produces oil. It produces oil that's useful to light lamps. And it was used to light lamps, the lamps, the golden lampstand in the temple. It was used for that purpose. And the oil of the olive tree represents in the Bible the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what's said in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In that very context, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So these witnesses, who are also martyrs in this chapter... These martyrs, they are uh, ones who have the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, they are also called two lampstands. The oil of the lampstands is necessary to light up the lamps, to light them up. And as lamps, just as it says in Matthew five fifteen to 16, that you are the light of the world. The light of the world. So as representatives uh, of Moses, like Moses and Elijah, like them, we too are the light of the world. And we stand before, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. They stand before Him because this is a, an indication that they are commissioned by Him. This is the same as what Gabriel said in, in Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, 19. I am, a, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. So those who stand in the presence of God are awaiting their commission from God to do His will on the earth. And this, that's the same here. Verse 5. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, they do eventually die, but before they die, they have a preaching ministry. They have a gospel ministry. And during that period, when anyone desires to harm them, and I take harm to mean to malign them, to mistreat them verbally, what do they do when they are mistreated verbally? They have fire that comes out of their mouth. The words of God are described as fire in Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? His words are like fire. And so when they come out, of the mouth of the prophets of God, they devour their enemies. They, that is, they refute, they confront, they convict, they bring guilt upon their enemies. They consume whatever their enemies might throw at them and, and, and make them into ashes. Verse 5 also says, And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. Those who refuse the word of God they will be killed. What, what, what does that signify? They have the second death. Anyone who does not believe in the gospel, what awaits him? The second death. He'll be killed or put to death forever and ever. 
he has eternal death or eternal punishment that awaits him. Verse 6, These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Here he describes their faith. Just as Elijah had faith in God, and God answered his prayer to bring a, a famine, a drought on the earth for three and a half years, and then to bring rain after the three and a half years. In the same way, these have power, power to do so. Moses and Elijah were men of faith, and these are, are plagues that they brought on the earth during their time. In Exodus 7 and 8, Moses did these kinds of things, uh, make turning water into blood, and smiting the earth with uh, every plague, meaning in that case it was Egypt, but in this case, wherever they go. They are able, by faith and dependence on God, prayerful dependence on God, able to overcome and able to bring God's will on the earth, even if it means affliction on their enemies by what they pray and what they speak. What they speak in verse 5 and how they pray and what they pray in verse 6. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, in due time, God allows them to remain and to have success in their preaching ministry and their uh, prayerful ministry. In due time, though, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. The beast in the, in the book of Revelation will be mentioned later as well. And every time the word the beast is, is mentioned, it is likely the Antichrist. The Antichrist, he will come up out of the abyss. Out, coming up out of the abyss, the abyss is the place where the demons are and where Satan rules, figuratively speaking, and then eventually into the lake of fire, Satan and all his demons will go. This authority and power is coming from Satan. The beast, or the Antichrist, has power that comes from the devil. And of course, that power from the devil is even relegated or delegated by God. God has the devil on a leash. He cannot do what God does not want him to do. So, God allows him, like the book of Job, Job 1 and 2, to control the Antichrist, and for the Antichrist to make war with them, and overcome them and kill them. Antichrist does kill. The devil does kill. Throughout history, he has killed and murdered people throughout history. He has murdered the people of God. He not only murders the people of God, he murders unbelievers too, because all the devil wants is death and destruction. He's a, a, a fatal creature, a creature who's lethal and brings about death and misery. Well, eventually, martyrdom occurs. It occurs to them, and they represent us. Some of us will die. Some of us will die for the faith. Verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Their dead bodies will lie there in the great city. It's called Sodom, Sodom because of the great moral perversion, and Egypt because of the great oppression and slavery that occurred there. The great city in the rest of the book of Revelation is clearly the city of Rome. Here, some interpreters take it to be Rome. 
that's an interpretation I think is wanting because of the last part of verse 8 when, when it says, where also their Lord was crucified. He identifies the place of the Lord's crucifixion, our Lord's crucifixion, which was in Jerusalem. So I think we must take this great city in this verse to be Jerusalem. So even in the, in the place such as Jerusalem, where dead bodies will be, there, um, it, it will lie there, they will lie there in the street. And what will happen when, the, they, when people see the dead bodies? Verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Now, this, this word, uh, this term three and a half or this expression three and a half, it is variously described. Here it's three and a half days for a dead body. Now, after the third day, the dead bodies develop a stench after the third day. But this is three and a half days, so there is a stench, and it's a hopeless, it's a, a, apparently a hopeless situation. Only a miracle can, can overcome that. Even a miracle would overcome it in two days. But this makes it more obvious because of the stench that there's nothing anybody can do. There's, there's a point of no return. And that's an obvious one, and people see that. Uh, that's one issue with the three and a half days. But the other thing is, notice in verse 2, it says that the holy city will be trampled underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half years. Here, three and a half days. Because of the incident that happened with Elijah in 1 Kings 17.1, he prayed that there would be no rain. And according to Luke 4.25 and uh, James 5, 17 to 19, that this time of famine and drought in the period of Elijah was three and a half years. It, three and a half years became a, uh, a way to signify a period of hardship, a period of distress. And so this three and a half days, this is a time of hopelessness, at least for the people of God when they see that so many of them are dying, that they feel hopeless and helpless. Not only that, but the enemies take opportunity in this case, verse 10, those who dwell on the earth. Remember, from chapter 3, verse 10, and throughout the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth means all the unbelievers. What will unbelievers do when they see that there are martyrs put to death and their bodies are here, there, everywhere, strewn throughout the landscape, and nobody to bury them. What will they do? They will, it says in verse 10, rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They're going to celebrate, they're going to have a festival and a big party, thinking that those two prophets who were causing them misery and tormenting them, they're gone. And there's no return for them. They're going to gloat over the destruction of the people of God. And notice what it says also in verse 10. What did those prophets do? The two prophets tormented them. Well, how did they torment them? They tormented them by preaching the truth. By telling them that they needed to repent of sin and that the day of judgment was awaiting them if they would not repent, they will not be ready for that day, and they will be thrown into hell. 
This is the kind of torment they brought on them. They tormented their consciences. They, they made them feel guilty because when they did not hear the prophets, they go about, about their merry way doing whatever sin they want to commit and nobody's tormenting them. Nobody's confronting and stopping them and saying anything about it. But in, in the case of the faithful ones of God, the two prophets and us, we in the church, when we preach, we actually torment guilty souls. We torment guilty souls, and that's okay. That's what the prophets did faithfully until death, and we should also do the same. Be faithful in that same way. But it's not over. Verse 11. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. There is a time of victory, in this case described as resurrection, here. God will overcome, and when God overcomes, and He has the upper hand, everyone who sees that God has the upper hand will have great fear that falls on them. They're going to be terrified on the day of judgment. When they see the resurrection of the righteous, they're going to be terrified. They're going to be terrified because they know the end has come, there's nothing they can do, God is stronger than they are, they will be sent to hell. Verse 12, Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. When they see, when they see that they are residing with God, they have escaped the torments of the earth, they have escaped all of the persecutions, and they are with God, they will be demoralized. They, they are going to see it, and they will not have anything to do. In fact, verse 13, And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here, a great earth, earthquakes in the Bible signify that judgment and holiness and righteousness that God brings upon the people. In this case, the, the, there are people who are dead, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. When it says they gave glory, it's just a way for John to say they are acknowledging that the praise goes to God, not that they are repentant. For example, Philippians 2, 9 to 11, or 5 to 11, in Philippians 2, it says that Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is possible for even the wicked on the day of judgment in their acknowledgement of who they are and who God is and what God has done on behalf of His people and how He's going to punish them, it's possible for them to bow the knee and worship Christ by force. What they would not do now, willingly, they will do there unwillingly. God will make them give Him glory. And that's what happens here too. Now, these woes, these curses, come in stages as it happens. They come in stages because God gives us object lesson after object lesson, both for us, we who know Him, and those who don't know Him, that they might repent. And this is what happens in verse 14. A second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, before this third woe, notice 15 to 18. 
What we see in 15 to 18 is uh, joy in heaven that God's kingdom has come and he is worshipped for it. God's kingdom has come and he's worshipped for it. You'll notice the past tense that, that is used here. The past tense is used in what is known as the prophetic perfect. Prophetic perfect. It is yet future, but it's described in the past tense because it's intended to show us that there is certainty as to the outcome of these events. These events will happen, and the certainty of it is expressed in the past tense, even though it is yet future. In fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus speaks this way about himself. In John 17 and verse 11, Jesus is in, in prayer to the Father, and of course he has not been crucified yet. In John 17, the crucifixion occurs in chapter 19. And in 1711, while he's praying, he says, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. He says, I am no more in the world. He's saying something that is certain to happen, not that it has already happened. The same we could say of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, much of that is written in the past tense. Much of it is written in the past tense. 53 verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. Verse 3, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was despised and forsaken of men. Um, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Or even verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, all in the past. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 11, 11, 15 to 18. Past tense, but it's describing future celebration. When all this has happened, verse 15, and, and the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This is the celebration that the world as a unified kingdom, the kingdom of the world in the singular, the world itself that is in the, the control of God and temporarily in the control of the devil because of this delegated authority God has given to the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Or John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus calls the devil, the ruler of the world. The ruler of the world. He is the ruler in a, a minor sense, in a subservient sense, but he won't be that anymore. The full domain, the full authority will be given to our Lord and His Christ, and they will reign forever. They will reign. The devil will be conquered. And we will worship. Six, 16 says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Acknowledging who is the ruler, the ultimate ruler, that produces worship. When we know who God is in truth, it should drive us to worship. 
17. We give thanks, O, o Lord God, the Almighty, who are and, and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. We thank God because He's Almighty. We thank Him because He's eternal. We thank Him because He uses His great power to reign, to ultimately stamp out all evil and make us victorious. The evil is described in verse 18. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came. The nations were enraged. They were enraged at God and inflicted the people of God. But God's punishment, His wrath, came on them, and God overcomes their anger. God's anger is a righteous anger and overcomes their anger, and they are punished. The time came for the dead to be judged and the time to give their reward to your bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. We who serve God, the prophets, the saints, all those who fear God, we, no matter who we are, whatever our rank and station in life now, whether we are small or great, whether we have a low rank, we have some some uh, laborious job, or w whether we have some uh, cushioned kind of job like many diplomats, ha diplomats have, wh whatever it is, small or great, if we believe in God, we will receive a reward. God will reward us with uh, this reward for all eternity. But He will also destroy the earth. When, he's, when it says to destroy the earth, He doesn't mean just the, the physical earth. I think he's talking about the people who are destructive and evil. This is what we find, for example, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11. In 6.11, God sees the earth in the time of Noah. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Sometimes the scriptures, like here, describes the earth, meaning the land, and sometimes it's the people on the land as the earth. And in this case, God, in the time of Noah, destroys both the land and the people. And I believe that that's what's happening here, too. In Revelation eleven eighteen, both the earth and the people are all destroyed. Verse 19, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Again here, when God, when God opens up, when God reveals His will, and in this case the Ark of the Covenant represented His covenant and His will, when God reveals Himself and He reveals His will, judgment comes on the earth. That's what happens. When God reveals Himself and His will, judgment comes to those who deserve it. This is meant to encourage us. Yes, there are persecutions. There will be martyrdom. That will happen. But God will, in due time, carry out His purposes. For us, He'll vindicate us, and we will celebrate. 
but also the people, the wicked people of the earth, they will be judged and get what they deserve. And we are to rejoice when that happens. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.